Letter thirty five of Letters from Egypt by Lady Lucy Duff Gordon. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. To Sir Alexander Duff Gordon, Luxor, March seventh, eighteen sixty four. Dearest Alec, the real hot weather, speaking after the manner of the English, has begun, and the fine sun and clear air are delicious and reviving. My cough fades away, and my strength increases slowly. One can no longer go out in the middle of the day, and I mount my donkey early and late, with little Achmet trotting beside me. In the evenings comes my dear Sheikh Yusuf, and I blunder through an hour's dictation, and reading of the story of the barber's fifth brother, he with the basket of glass. I presume that Yusuf likes me too, for I am constantly greeted with immense cordiality by graceful men in green turbans, belonging, like him, to the holy family of Sheikh Abu el-Hajjaj. They inquire tenderly after my health, and pray for me, and hope I am going to stay among them. You would be much struck here with the resemblance to Spain, I think. Cosas de España is exactly the Shogel el-Arab, and Don Fulano is the Arabic word Fulan, such a one, as Ojala is Inshallah, plays God. The music and dancing here, too, are Spanish, only more so, and much more. March tenth, 1864. Yesterday was Biram, and on Tuesday evening everybody who possessed a gun or a pistol banged away. Every drum and tarabuka was thumped, and all the children hollered, Ramadan Mat, Ramadan Mat, Ramadan's dead, about the streets. At daybreak Omar went to the early prayer, a special ceremony of the day. There were crowds of people, so, as it was useless to pray and preach in the mosque, Sheikh Yusuf went out upon a hillock in the burying-ground, where they all prayed and he preached. Omar reported the sermon to me, as follows, It is all extempore. First Yusuf pointed to the graves, Where are all those people? And to the ancient temples, Where are those who built them? Do not strangers from a far country take away their corpses to wonder at? What did their splendor avail them? etc., etc., what then, O Muslims, will avail that you may be happy when that comes which will come for all? Truly God is just and will defraud no man, and he will reward you if you do what is right, and that is, to wrong no man, neither in person, nor in his family, nor in his possessions. Cease then to cheat one another, O men, and to be greedy, and do not think that you can make amends by afterwards giving alms, or praying, or fasting, or giving gifts to the servants of the mosques. Benefits come from God. It is enough for you if you do no injury to any man, and above all to any woman or little one. Of course it was much longer, but this was the substance, Omar tells me, pretty sound morality, too, methinks, and might be preached with one advantage to a meeting of philanthropists in Exeter Hall. There is no predestination in Islam, and every man will be judged upon his actions. Even unbelievers God will not defraud, says the Koran. Of course, a belief in meritorious work leads to the same sort of superstition as among Catholics, the endeavor to make one's soul by alms, fastings, endowments, etc. Therefore, Yusuf's stress upon doing no evil seems to me very remarkable, and really profound. After the sermon, all the company assembled rushed on him to kiss his head, and his hands, and his feet, and mobbed him so fearfully that he had to lay about him with the wooden sword which is carried by the officiating Alim. He came to wish me the customary good wishes soon after, and looked very hot and tumbled, and laughed heartily about the awful kissing he had undergone. 
All the men embrace on meeting on the festival of Baram. The kitchen is full of cakes, ring-shaped, which my friends have sent me, just as we see offered to the gods in the temples and tombs. I went to call on the Maon in the evening, and found a lot of people dressed in their best. Half were cops, among them a very pleasing young priest who carried on a religious discussion with Salim Effendi, strange to say, with perfect good humor on both sides. A copt came up with his farm laborer, who had been beaten and the field robbed. The copt stated the case in ten words, and the Maun sent off his cavass with him to apprehend the accused persons, who were to be tried at sunrise and beaten, if found guilty, and forced to make good the damage. General Hay called yesterday, a fine old blue-eyed soldier. He found a lot of fellahines sitting with me, enjoying coffee and pipes hugely, and they were much gratified at our pressing them not to move or disturb themselves, when they all started up in dismay at the entrance of such a grand-looking Englishman and got off the carpet. So we told them that in our country the business of a farmer was looked upon as very respectable, and that the general would ask his farmers to sit and drink wine with him. Mush'Allah Taib Katir, it is the will of God, and most excellent, said old Omar, my fellow-friend, and kissed his hand to General Hay quite affectionately. We English are certainly liked here. Salim said yesterday evening that he had often to do business with them, and found them always dogry, straight men, of one word, and of no circumlocations, and so unlike all the other Europeans, and especially the French. The fact is, that few but decent English come here, I fancy our scamps go to the colonies, whereas Egypt is the sink for all iniquity in the south of Europe. A worthy copt here, one Todorus, took a piece of paper for twenty pounds for antiquities sold to an Englishman, and after the Englishman was gone, brought it to me to ask what sort of paper it was, and how he could get it changed, or was he, perhaps, to keep it till the gentleman sent him the money? It was a circular note, which I had difficulty in explaining, but I offered to send it to Cairo, to Briggs's, and get it cashed. As to when he would get the money, I could not say, as they must wait for a safe hand to send gold by. I told him to put his name on the back of the note, and Todorus thought I wanted it as a receipt for the money which was yet to come, and was going cheerfully to write me a receipt for the twenty pounds he was entrusting to me. Now, a copt is not at all green where his pocket is concerned, but they will take anything from the English." I do hope no swindler will find it out. Mr. Close told me that when his boat sank in the cataract, and he remained half-dressed on the rock, without a farthing, four men came and offered to lend him anything. While I was in England last year, an Englishman to whom Omar acted as La Coise de Place went away owing him seven pounds for things bought. Omar had money enough to pay all the tradespeople, and kept it secret, for fear any of the other Europeans should say, shame for the English, and did not even tell his family. Luckily the man sent the money by the next mail from Malta, and the sheikh of the dragomans proclaimed it, and so Omar got it, but he would never have mentioned it else. This concealing of evil is considered very meritorious, and where women are concerned positively a religious duty. Le scandale a si qui fait l'offense is very much the notion in Egypt, and I believe that very forgiving husbands are commoner here than elsewhere. The whole idea is found on the verse of the Koran, incessantly quoted, The woman is made for the man, but the man is made for the woman. Ergo, the obligations to chastity are equal. Ergo, as the men find it difficult, 
they argue that the women do the same. I have never heard a woman's misconduct spoken of without a hundred excuses. Perhaps her husband had slave girls, perhaps he was old or sick, or she didn't like him, or she couldn't help it. Violent love comes by the visitation of God, as our juries say, the man or woman must satisfy it or die. A poor young fellow is now in the Muristan, the madhouse, of Cairo, owing to the beauty and sweet tongue of an English lady whose servant he was. How could he help it? God sent the calamity. I often hear of Lady Ellenborough, who is married to the Sheikh el Arab of Palmyra, and lives at Damascus. The Arabs think it inhuman of English ladies to avoid her. Perhaps she has repented. At all events, she is married and lives with her husband. I asked Omar if he would tell his brother if he saw his wife do anything wrong. N.B. He can't endure her. Certainly not. I must cover her with my cloak. I am told, also, that among the Arabs of the desert, the real Arabs, when a traveller, tired and wayworn, seeks their tents, it is the duty of his host, generally the sheikh, to send him into the harem, and leave him there three days, with full permission to do as he will after the women have bathed and rubbed and refreshed him. But he must never speak of that harem, they are to him as his own, to be reverenced. If he spoke, the husband would kill him, but the Arab would never do it for a European, because all Europeans are so hard upon women, and do not fear God and conceal their offences. If a dancing girl repents, the most respectable man may and does marry her, and no one blames or laughs at him. I believe all this leads to a good deal of irregularity, but certainly the feeling is amiable. It is impossible to conceive how startling it is to a Christian to hear the rules of morality applied with perfect impartiality to both sexes, and to hear Arabs who know our manners talk of the English as being jealous and hard upon their women. Any unchastity is wrong and haram, unlawful, but equally so in men and women. Salim Effendi talked in this strain, and seemed to incline to greater indulgence to women on the score of their ignorance and weakness. Remember, I only speak of Arabs. I believe the Turkish ideas are different, as is their whole harem system, and Egypt is not the rule for all Muslims. Saturday, the 12th. I dined last night with Mustafa, who again had the dancing girls for some Englishmen to see. Salim Effendi got the doctor, who was of the party, to prescribe for him, and asked me to translate to him all about his old stomach as coolly as possible. He, as usual, sat by me on the divan, and during the pause in the dancing called El Maghribia, the best dancer, to come and talk. She kissed my hand, sat on her heels before us, and at once laid aside the professional gallardise of manner, and talked very nicely in very good Arabic, and with perfect propriety, more like a man than a woman, she seemed very intelligent. What a thing we should think it for a worshipful magistrate to call up a girl of that character to talk to a lady! Yesterday we had a strange and unpleasant day's business. The evening before I had my pocket picked in Karnak by two men who hung about me, one to sell a bird, the other of the regular loafers, who hang about the ruins to beg, and sell water or curiosities, and who are all a lazy, bad lot, of course. I went to Salim, who wrote at once to the Sheikh el Belid of Karnak, to say that we should go over next morning at eight o'clock to investigate the affair, and desire him to apprehend the men. Next morning Salim fetched me, and Mustafa came to represent English interests, and as we rode out of Luxor, the Sheikh el Arabda joined us, 
with four of his tribe with their long guns, and a lot more with lances. He was a volunteer, and furious at the idea of a lady and a stranger being robbed. It is the first time it has happened here, and the desire to beat was so strong that I went to act as consul for the prisoner. Every one was peculiarly savage that it should have happened to me, a person well known to be so friendly to El Muslimin. When we arrived we went into a square enclosure, with a sort of cloister on one side, spread with carpets where we sat, and the wretched fellows were brought in chains. To my horror I found that they had been beaten already. I remonstrated, "'What if you had beaten the wrong men? Malaysh, never mind. We will beat the whole village until your purse is found.' I said to Mustafa, "'This won't do. You must stop this.' So Mustafa ordained, with the concurrence of the Maun, that the Sheikh el-Belid and the Gefiya, the keeper of the ruins, should pay me the value of the purse. As the people of Karnak are very troublesome in begging and worrying, I thought this would be a good lesson to the said Sheikh to keep better order, and I consented to receive the money, promising to return it and to give a Napoleon if ever the purse comes back with his contents, three and a half Napoleons.' The Sheikh el Arabda harangued the people on their ill behavior to Harimat, called them Harami, rascals, and was very high and mighty to the Sheikh el Belid. Hereupon I went away to visit a Turkish lady in the village, leaving Mustafa to settle. After I was gone, they beat eight or ten of the boys who had mobbed me, and begged with the two men. Mustafa, who does not like the stick, stayed to see that they were not hurt, and so far it will be a good lesson to them. He also had the two men sent over to the prison here, for fear the Sheikh el Belid should beat them again, and will keep them here for a time. So far so good, but my fear now is that the innocent people will be squeezed to make up the money, if the men do not give up the purse. I have told Sheikh Yusuf to keep watch on how things go, and if the men persist in the theft and don't return the purse, I shall give the money to those whom the Sheikh el Belid will assuredly squeeze, or else to the mosque of Karnak. I cannot pocket it, though I thought it quite right to exact the fine as a warning to the Karnak mauvais sujet. As we went home, the Sheikh el Abada, such a fine fellow he looks, came up and rode beside me, and said, I know you are a person of kindness. Do not tell this story in this country. If Effendina, Ismail Pasha, comes to hear, he may take a broom and sweep away the village. I exclaimed in horror, and Mustafa joined at once in the request, and said, do not tell any one in Egypt. The Sheikh el Abada is quite true. It may cost many lives. The whole thing distressed me horribly. If I had not been there, they would have beaten right and left, and if I had shown any desire to have any one punished, evidently they would have half killed the two men. Mustafa behaved extremely well. He showed sense, decision, and more feelings of humanity than I at all expected of him. Pray do as I begged you. Try to get him paid." Some of the consuls in Cairo are barely civil, and old Mustafa has all the bother and work of the whole of the Nile boats, eighty-five this winter, and he is boundlessly kind and useful to the English, and a real protection against cheating, etc. End of letter 35. Read by Sibella Denton. All LibriVox files are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org.